This is Five and Nine, a podcast newsletter at the intersection of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season One, Episode Three. That was Look for the Silver Lining, recorded in 1921 and written by Jerome Kern and B.G. De Silva. Part of 400,000 sound recordings made available in the public domain this year. You can find the lyrics for this music, links to the books we referenced, and pictures of the tarot cards in this show at thisis5and9.com. Hi everyone, my name is Anna Mina, a.k.a. An Shao, producer at 5 and 9. This is Dorothy Santos, director of Magic at 5 and 9. This is Xiaowei Wang, creative director and director of Magic. So every full moon, we're pushing out a new podcast. And it's been interesting watching that cadence now that it's been two moons. By the time this comes out, it'll be a third moon. And so much has changed. I think, remember the first time we recorded, we were thinking about that tsunami alert in the Bay Area, which now feels like such long ago news. So much is changing in the day-to-day just month by month. And when we're thinking about this with relationship to work and career, I think one thing we've all been talking about is what is the role of career planning in a time like this when the world is both literally and figuratively burning in such such tragic and difficult ways? What does it mean to even be thinking about work and career during these times? It's actually something I've been seeing a lot, particularly amongst some of my students and just like younger folks in general. This question of like, everything feels desperate. It's never enough, no matter how many GoFundMes, no matter how many fundraisers, all these things, like the world is still crumbling. And yet we're still here typing our emails and like setting our quarterly goals. And so I think one way that I've thought about it for myself is that oftentimes the things that we want to see happen and change in the world might not happen in our lifetimes or we might not get to see them in our lifetimes. And that change is slow. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Xiaowei, this whole idea of timing and how we might not be able to see things happen in our lifetime or lifetimes. (laughs) I'm speaking for myself, but it does remind me all the more reason to be present because that's the only thing that you can really, I don't even like using the word control, but having a mindfulness of present moment and how to deal with the things that you can deal with right here where we are. And I think that's difficult for a lot of people because a lot of people love dwelling in the future, what is to be, or what is the potentiality of a thing. So people get fatalistic or people dwell in nostalgia. We also dwell in these constructs that we grew up with amongst our families, our parents, what we see in media, what we feel we ought to be. Everything in media becomes almost an aspiration of the thing that we must attain. But the reality is that has nothing actually to do with this, has very little to do with our own individual experiences. One kind of interpretation that I've, of the the classic three-card spread that I, has resonated for me at least, is instead of thinking, you know, the big past, big present, big future is just like conditions. What are the conditions leading up to now? What are the conditions of the present? And what are some conditions to think about in the future? And 
in so many ways for me, thinking about time as a series of progressions, uh, contributions, uh, you know, moments that influence other moments that and effects that we won't fully understand for years and years. It helps me stay in the present in ways that, that at least are, are helpful for me personally. I could not help but think of the Wheel of Fortune. When I read for people and this card shows up, sometimes I notice this kind of big sigh happen with the person. You know, even if, they, even if they're not familiar with tarot, I sometimes will ask them, well, what do you see? And, you know, I use a deck that actually says what it is. And then they go, well, it says Wheel of Fortune. So it means that there's no answer. And this kind of goes back to being fatalistic or being nostalgic or wishing for something that was, that was good at the time, but is no more. Or wishing for something that in your mind is great, but you also don't know the conditions of that vision as well. I mean, if, if anyone knows these contentious feelings around making and goal setting, it would be an artist. Because you always have something in your mind of what something is going to be. And then it never turns out exactly the way you want to be. And a lot of it is because there were conditions and circumstances along the way that actually you might not have not foreseen. And so I oftentimes tell people when the Wheel of Fortune shows up, I always see it as the universe asking you to be more present. It also is reminiscent of the fates. You know, the spinner, the allotter, the unturnable. So these, these three, you know, entities that are spinning time and, and space and, and story and narrative. When someone applies to a job or that they, that they know it's a, it's a sure thing. I know the person who got, who's getting me in. This is a sure thing. And then they don't get it. Or an artist who said, well, this is a long shot. I'm never going to get this grant. I'm never going to get this fellowship. I know this feeling very well. But then you get it. So how does that change the time-space continuum? How does that change what you thought that you couldn't get that you have all of a sudden? Because that affects what you envisioned in your mind. And I feel the Wheel of Fortune is always a reminder for me of that. Those things that I need to consider in the present moment. This idea that there would be linear progress, that we could set a goal and could just get there, and that you know, there, there'd always be this kind of constant improvements in society. It seems like that was the illusion. It seems like that was the kind of vision that set out for so many years. It's like the thing that we do. If we just set these goals, we're going to meet them. But instead, when you look at a lot of ancient wisdom, it's it's that time moves in cycles. Time moves in kind of circular fashion and in kind of waves that come and go. I was listening to this beautiful podcast and talk by the Buddhist teacher and writer, Kyra Duolingo. And she uses this wonderful metaphor of the waves kind of crashing. When I'm in the ocean, the waves, they come, they go. Some are big, some are small. But the one thing I've learned about the waves is that if the more you try to resist them, the harder it is. You just have to ride them. You have to flow with them. You have to anticipate them. And you don't know what waves are coming. But once it's obvious, once you see it there, and once you're in it, you have to change how you are. And it's gotten kind of me thinking a lot about this, about these kind of um, these old ideas of time, these old ideas of, of, of fate, of karma, of the wheel of fortune, how that's in many ways, that is the reality is that we just don't know anymore. Certainly didn't before, but now we just don't know what the next full moon will bring. And 
that's actually how most of humanity has lived for a very long time. And so in some ways, we're just adapting to that now. Damn, Anna, you straight took it to you took it to the pulpit harder than the Hierophant. You know what I'm saying? That that was fan freaking tastic. Shall we? Because you know the water. You know the waves so well as our, our in-house Scorpio. I'm going to get hella Californian for a second. <laughs> <laughs> but so I um, actually learned how to swim when I was 30. And it was really difficult as an adult because you're like, here's a substance that is going to kill me. <laughs> Why am I going into it? I do not trust the fact that you can put your face in it and I won't drown. But so after learning how to swim, I got, I just fell in love with the ocean. So, you know, it's been incredible to, you know, spend weekends out just in the ocean, swimming, boogie boarding, on a surfboard. And it's like, that sense of going with a wave or it's like I think that precipice of both being active and also accepting. There are a lot of threads of new age thinking or tarot or meditative practice that can veer into turning us into feeling like, oh, we just need to accept everything you know, this bad thing is a teacher and haha, everything's all good now. And I also think that that's one extreme that I really, you know, don't find very helpful for myself. I think there is this kind of middle path of, you know, seeing the waves, knowing that the waves are different, knowing that the waves are always shifting. So actually, especially in the Bay Area, when you're in the ocean, the waves are always going to be different because they're affected by the way that the sand changes. And, you know, that's constantly shifting. Just being able to accept the difference in reality of each wave, but also not be like pounded in the face by it and actually like, you know, move towards it or move further away or just like figuring out how to maneuver and navigate in it. I think that's been like this lesson I've learned from the water that I'm trying to apply more broadly. And so I think it I think it applies to the goal setting in terms of also the ways that we think about movement work as well. It's like not just throwing our hands up and saying, oh, it's all useless, but to really say like, no, there is a way to navigate through these waves. How do we do it skillfully? You know, and I was listening to Lori Santos's podcast, uh, The Happiness Lab, No Relation. I've had a few people ask me if I'm related to her. <laughs> she teaches psychology. And one of the things that she was talking about was negative thinking. So when you prepare, so it's not just this toxic positivity that everything's going to work out. It's more of, well, what if it doesn't? And then what happens when that negative thing that I am preparing for does happen? How will I overcome that? Because nothing, well, most things are not wholly insurmountable if you prepare.
There's this tradition of setting intentions with every new moon. And one thing I really appreciated, Shelby, is how you, you wanted to shift that a little bit, is that to shift it into the new moon as, as an opportunity for us to do shadow work. My students can tell you, they're like, why do you always relate everything to swimming? Um, but I will relate it to swimming. And when I started to learn how to swim, there was like these moments of panic. And so I had to take this adult swim class called Miracle Swim with this retired firefighter named Richard, who um, was amazing. But he kind of always emphasized, he was like, take it slow. And the worst thing that you can do is panic. To the kind of unskillful, it's like, oh my God, I don't want to panic. I'm terrified. What if I panic? I'm going to drown. And, you know, I think there's a way of realizing and recognizing that we have all these shadow emotions. And the point is to not be more anxious about them or try and avoid them or try and eradicate them, but to really work with our shadows because that's actually like this really complex and endlessly fascinating and super helpful, at least for me, place to be. Instead of orienting moon work towards, oh, what's like the thing I need to manifest in my life? I need more abundance. It's actually like, let me take a step back and realize I do actually have a lot. And then also actually think about the shadows that I might be running away from and what do I make of these shadows? There's something really poetic also there about doing this during the new moon because it's literally the shadow of the moon facing us. And there's a, there's a Zen saying that whether it's the shadow side of the moon or the light side of the moon, it's all moon. It's all, um, it's all just part of what moonness is about. And this idea of doing shadow work, of engaging with, the, with the, kind of these shadow emotions, that's all part of what life is about, right? It's all part of what it means to be a human, is that there are things that cause us stress and strain, things that cause us panic, things that uplift us and bring us joy. Recently, I read one of the chapters from Sarah Ahmed's uh, book, Complaint. You know, she investigates what it means to actually be on record complaining of injustice. What happens when we are thrown unintentionally into the shadow work? Because shadow work is not just about ourselves. I think obviously we confront different modalities that we operate in, um, feeling anxiety, frustration, disappointment, anger, rage. This kind of goes to, shall we, what you were saying about movement work and what you've always said, actually, that sometimes it really is just about, you know, sometimes it's a few people. And it's incremental. It's not all at once, even though sometimes media tells us that because of the images that we are shown. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why I bring up, you know, Ahmed's book is because one of the things I found so compelling and so resonant is the fact that when you complain, the textual nature of it and the documentation that ensues after a grievance has been, quote unquote, filed. You actually start to allow other people to complain as well. And what does it mean to have that buildup that someone felt that they couldn't actually express, that they felt the need to suppress it? That's actually revisiting a trauma so that it proves it proves itself to be a catalyst for something new and different. 
I feel the reason why that's adjacent or related to shadow work is because when you see injustice, it's not always, the complaint is not always welcomed. And what I've been thinking about as I've been reading uh, Sarah Joff or Joffy's, Sarah Joff's book, uh, you know, Work Won't Love You Back. And a video surfaced from a journalist, uh, two journalists, I believe, in the UK about the abusive nature of uh, game studios. So video game studios in particular, and how there are video game makers or founders of studios that are, they, they want to promote accessibility, inclusivity, empathy. Their games are so beautiful, yet the conditions at which these games, these beautiful games that I have played myself were abusive environments. That's a major, it's like, then how do you, how do you grapple with that? How, how as a consumer or as a community or as someone who is invested in these artistic and creative practices, reconcile all of that? And some of these people that were harmed were my mentors and collaborators, artists that I deeply admire. I had no idea this was going on. So these are the types of things that I think about with shadow work. How do you reconcile? How do you reconcile the injustice of someone's lived experience that they feel that they can't talk about, that they can't even complain about? And then much later on, after all of the, the muck and the mire of having to deal with the emotional abuse and the difficulties and challenges of making something so beautiful. I love what you brought up about shadow work, not just being for ourselves. Because I think very broadly, you know, new age, like tarot stuff, it can be very neoliberal, you know, like it's the the burden is on the individual, right? To like manifest or like look in our shadows and all these things. But you're right. So many of the structures that we live under, like the social processes, the cultural processes, all these things down to like the ways that in a workplace we understand or make sense of feedback it's a very taken for granted process. It's very easy to just keep going with the way that we've been conditioned. And as much as we say, like, I'm anti-capitalist or I'm feminist or all these things, yet at the same time, we live in society and we've been conditioned in so many ways. In terms of collective shadow work, this is also part of our conditioning. I look back upon even just conversations with friends or coworkers where how many times has someone expressed their pain or something bad has happened to them? And my immediate thought is not, I am seeing their pain and sitting with it. But instead, it's like reactionary, right? I'm like, oh my God, we need to do something. We Immediately, we need to fix it, blah, blah, blah. Like, And so to be so reactionary, it's not sitting with the shadow and first, you know, fully being with it. And I think there really is a power to like be with someone else's pain in that way. What I'm finding both in readings that are read for me and readings that I do for others is that sometimes simply having that space to sit and be present with emotions, to just let them be there without reacting or trying to fix them right away are sometimes the most kind of most powerful moment in a reading because we we have so few spaces in our culture right now where simply sitting and being is considered acceptable or encouraged. There's there's just so much anxiety in the world right now. 
And at the same time, there's this kind of growth and as a practice, listening to one's intuition, listening, trusting your gut. How do we how do we sit with all these emotions in a way that is at least in some way helpful for us? I feel a lot of people, and I'll speak for myself, we are in our heads a lot. And I was at a you know, very small gathering this past week, uh, outside lunch, honoring still the that we're we're still in a pandemic. And someone I deeply admire, Mimi Locke, who is an ED for Voice of Witness, which is an incredible organization. This was not a plug. This literally is just because I adore Mimi. She said, oh, you're, you're not eating. Uh, and I said, yeah, I know the food looks really good, but I actually, you know, I got, I got so hungry that I, I just needed to get a bagel. And then she looks at me and says, oh, so you really attuned yourself to your needs. That's great. Don't feel bad. And she said, continue doing that. And I bring up this story because I felt in that moment when she asked me, I felt like I, I, I was uh, brought back to my auntie or uncle's house. And, you know, when you're in a Filipino household, if you don't eat, that's rude. So there's all these kind of cultural constructs in your mind of what you ought to do or how you ought to act when you're in with other people. And I kind of let my anxiety get to me because I thought, oh my gosh, I better eat something even though I, I'm very full. Part of the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it serves as such a metaphor to how people function. But because it's not a somatic response, people think that, well, I can overload myself with work. I, 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 can, do one, I can do one more hour. I have these 10 emails I need to respond to, and I, I didn't get to it during the day, but, but, but I could do it. I really can. It, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And it's not fine at all. And when I think about the difference between following one's intuition and anxiety, I think the intuition has more to do with it's very holistic. It's, it's very much an embodied thing. It's not just your mind thinking, this is going to be a great idea. That's not it. Your intuition takes into account, it's like the magician wielding all of the elements. You can't do that without practice. So you pay attention to your body. You pay attention to your mind. You pay attention to your heart. Anxiety is not about that. Anxiety is based on, you know, Xiaowei brought up this kind of the neoliberal aspect of our times and notions of free enterprise is bootstrapping everything. Well, you could just you could just manifest. No, you can't. How can you manifest when you're hungry? How can you manifest when you're thinking about your aging parent that's thousands of miles away from you? You can't manifest when your body is not all and not to be, you know, woo-woo here. I mean, oh for goodness sake, I'm the director of magic for Christ or for God's sake. See, that's why I, recovering Catholic there. Sorry. I guess what I'm trying to say is, to me, that is the difference. Intuition and anxiety. Anxiety is a thing that capitalism feeds on. It's a thing that says, oh, Dorothy's real anxious right now. I I'm going I'm to I'm put something on that algorithm that makes her feel even more anxious. Or, you know, she's about to play the radio. It's like, I think of screw tape letters, you know, and I know some people might feel a little bit weird because C.S. Lewis is more of like a, a lot of Christian underpinnings in that. But as someone who's born and raised in Catholicism, I'm a recovering Catholic. I don't, I'm spiritual, not religious, to put that on the record. 
I think of some of his writing, but in particular, screw tape, like how how's the devil, you know, there's a lot of archetypes coming up today, but how's the devil seizing those opportunities of of play with your shadow to test you, to make you feel anxious, but to not make you feel that you actually can trust your intuition, almost as if you're gaslighting yourself. I feel like it's related to the shadow work because it's like your intuition is like, okay, how do I work with these shadows? And then anxiety is like, I am a shadow. I can't do anything. And I feel like especially in these ever increasingly wild times that we live under, I always think of my intuition as like the voice in me that says, this is what I need to survive. And it's like affirmative. I need rest. I need good food. I need my loved ones. Whereas my anxiety is like, oh my God, like I'm going to lose everything. And so if I don't do this thing, yeah, it's much less out of that affirmative, I will survive voice. One of the advantages of a podcast newsletter is uh, we can complement the audio format of the podcast with written resources and notes, especially about all the books that we're referencing here, the tarot cards. Listeners uh, can now visit thisis5and9.com to read more. And uh, speaking of, actually, uh, Dorothy and Shaway, what have you all been looking at and listening to that you'd like to share with the audience? I guess one resource that Especially for folks during this time, this was actually a book that uh, Ian D. Pei from Logic School, they recommended, and it's called Trauma Stewardship. I highly recommend it for folks, especially if you're working, you know, if you're doing movement work or any sort of work out in the world and it feels like it's not enough right now or not happening fast enough. I feel like that book has a lot of wisdom in terms of making space to yeah, have more compassion for yourself. Thank you so much, Shaway, for sharing that resource because I need to delve into the depths of that. <laughs> Especially at this time. I, on the other hand, uh, wanted to mention the Kindergartner's Hotline, if that's okay. Please. Uh, what is the Kindergartner's Hotline, Dorothy? <laughs> the Kindergartner's Hotline is a hotline that uh, I, I feel a few teachers came up with this idea where they asked their um their kindergartners to uh, provide, you know, affirmation. So you call and it's literally from the mouth of, of the children saying things like, you can do it. You can do it. You're great. You know, our, our younger previous selves can also be ancestors, but I feel people don't tap into those younger versions of ourselves because we always think that, well, that was an unwise or juvenile side of me or a younger version that didn't know anything, but we can still tap into that. For those uh, listening in, you can see a link to this in our newsletter. This is fiveandnine.com, but, or you can just give a call to pep talk. That's P E P T O C and give them a ring at plus one seven zero seven 
998-8410. There's projects like this out in the world that remind us to be a little less tense about what's happening, uh, even though it does deserve our attention, that even for two minutes, we can allow ourselves some joy. <laughs> 